Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this episode we'll be hearing about the loveliest of winter flowers, snowdrops. We'll also be learning about how a wild orchid from the Mediterranean turned up in Essex and taking lessons from a six-year-old in how important wildflowers are for butterflies. Wildflower Half Hour is a podcast for Wildflower Hour which takes place every Sunday between 8 and 9pm. All you need to do is find some flowers growing wild in Britain or Ireland, post them on Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag wildflowerhour or in the Wildflower Hour Facebook group. You don't need to know a thing about wildflowers. All you need to do is find them. First up, it's snowdrop season. And if you've been taking part in Wildflower Hour recently, you will have seen hundreds of these tiny flowers popping up all over your social media. So many of us, myself included, yearn for the first dainty white snowdrop flower nodding above the frozen soil because it tells us that winter is nearly over. But it might surprise some of you that snowdrops aren't actually native to the UK. Professor Mick Crawley is one of the UK's leading authorities on snowdrops and I asked him where these plants come from and why we love them so much. So Mick, are snowdrops native to the British Isles? Snowdrops look native in lots of places, especially in woodlands, but in fact they're not. They were introduced by people, and they were introduced by people relatively recently. So probably there weren't very many snowdrops in British woodlands in the Middle Ages, for example. When did they first come to the British Isles? That's fact of when they were first introduced is lost in the mists of time. But it's clear from people's writings about British plants that they weren't here when the... Well, they weren't here looking naturalised when the first assessments were made in the 18th century. So they're relatively recent, despite the fact they look so well naturalised. And did they escape from gardens or were they planted in woodlands to make them look prettier in the early spring, late winter? As far as we can tell, most of the ones that are in woodlands were put there on purpose. There's very little evidence these days of snowdrops spreading outside the wood that they were planted in by by natural means. Although they do naturalise extremely well once planted. And where do they come from originally? Most of the snowdrops that you find in the wildest species are in the southeastern parts of Europe, around Aegean and Turkey, and spreading into Asia as far as the Caucasus. So relatively mild, relatively dry climates. And I think a lot of people, as well as being surprised that they're not native to the British Isles, might be surprised to learn that there's more than one type of snowdrop. They are quite small and examining them it can be quite uncomfortable because they obviously flower at a time of the year when the ground is cold and wet. And so you have to be quite committed to <laughs> kneel down next to them, don't you? You do have to get down on your knees to get the details, but you can do a lot from head height because a lot of the distinctions have to do with really quite obvious things that once you get your eye in, you can tell the two colours of leaf, for example. So the familiar snowdrop has a sort of blue-grey gunmetal colour to its leaf. Some of the rarer ones are clearly green. They're grass green or they're dark apple green. So colour's important. And leaf size is important too. So the classic snowdrop that everyone knows has what we would define as being narrow leaves. And so if something has a conspicuously broader leaf than a classic snowdrop, then it's something interesting. So what's the common snowdrop's botanical name? The common snowdrop is in the genus Galanthus, as they all are. So if it's not in the genus Galanthus, it's not a snowdrop. And then our common one is called Galanthus nivalis. Nivalis, of course, being snow. So the other ones are species and hybrids other than Galanthus nivalis. And which ones are we most likely to find naturalised in the wild? You find 
none of them commonly naturalized in the wild. The, the place to go and see semi-wild snowdrops outside of classic collections in parkland, you know, where you actually pay to go for a snowdrop day, would be in churchyards. So most village churchyards have at least one, often two or three extra snowdrops growing in the churchyard in addition to Galanthus nivalis. And how do snowdrops manage to flower so much earlier than many other wild or garden plants? A lot of people have quite an emotional connection to them because they tell us that spring is on the way and that the horrible dark months of winter are nearly over. But for the snowdrop, it must be quite tough just getting to that point. It is all of these very early flowering things that are bulbs. Snowdrop, incidentally, is in the, is the allium family, along with onions and garlic and so on. They do the fairly counterintuitive thing of actually doing all the business the year before. So everything is IKEA-like, pre-produced and packaged. And all we see in early spring is that pre-packaged flower expanding and showing itself. So the hard work was done last autumn. And how do they get out of the ground? Yeah, well, their their leaf chemistry, of course, is very interesting. Anything that's actually expanding at this time of year has to be frost-proof and extremely frost-proof. So the chemistry of the leaves of all of these early species are extremely interesting. And for those who might be starting to get bitten by the snowdrop bug, there is actually an affliction called galanthomania, which is people starting to collect snowdrops and become a little bit obsessed with those small differences between the different plants. And this is a problem because people can end up stealing snowdrops, can't they? How have we got to this this position over quite a, a dainty little plant? Yes, I think what started people off as galanthophiles and then subsequently galanthomaniacs was, I think, a combination of the time of year, which is very curious, and something about their pertness, which is an aesthetic thing that I don't fully understand. And then, of course, rarity. So you you remember from your history lessons about how expensive tulip bulbs became in the 18th century. Well, snowdrop bulbs of the rarities became relatively even more expensive in Victorian times when they hit their peak of fashionableness. So I think it's a combination of things, but the rarity of some of the forms and the subtlety of some of the differences attracts a certain kind of person, I think. But everyone likes snowdrops as a group. It's only a a small subset of people who become obsessed by the smaller details, most of which are on the coloring of the inner petals. So if you look at a snowdrop carefully, there are three big outer petals that are usually white and are hanging downwards. And then inside that, underneath the skirt, if you like, are three shorter petals, often in a tube. And it's the amount of green marking on those inner tepals, as they're called, that's the key to the real rarities. So there are all sorts of strange-looking shapes that have bizarre names uh, given to them by galanthophiles, describing the shape and the intensity of the colour of the green marks inside. Tell us about some of those shapes. There's a snowdrop called Grumpy, isn't there? Well, it's an early sort of emojis, really. So people have been describing the marks on the inner tepals as things like sad faces, for example, so grumpy. There's one very easy one, which looks like the print of a roe deer in mud. Um, So there's all sorts of things. The key point is how many marks there are. So our common snowdrop has a single mark, which is a sort of an indistinct V shape at the bottom nearest to the observer. Some of the other really classic groups of snowdrops have two marks, a V-shaped one at the bottom and then a solid one, almost hidden at the top of the inner petal. 
and then on others that the two green marks merge so that the entire inner petal is green of various hues. And so it's the subtlety of, of the partitioning of the color, one spot, two spots are continuous, and then the shapes that they make. So one of the classic green-leafed ones, the darker of the two green-leafed ones, got a wonderful name. It's called Galanthus icarii. It has a mark at the bottom, which is exactly like middle-aged men's lycra cycling short. That's glorious. And are all snowdrops green and white? No, the, the real rarities, the ones you would pay hundreds of pounds per bulb for, have all of their marks, including the ovary, which is at the top of the flower, in yellow. And they're very special. They originated, we don't know precisely how, but in gardens in North Northumberland. So they're called the Northumbria Yellows. And they change hands, as I said, for large sums of money. What's the most expensive snowdrop bulb that's been bought recently? Are we talking hundreds? Are we talking thousands? I don't know the answer to that. You'd have to in- independently research that. But it would, be, it would be for scores of pounds, if not hundreds. And so tell us about the common species that people can look out for. What are they called and what do they look like? So when you go into your churchyard, say, looking for extra snowdrops, the first ones you'll see everywhere and the ones that, are, that they've established en masse will be ordinary Galanthus novalis. Then you'll be looking for something with broader leaves, gunmetal grey, blue-grey leaves, but broad. If they're unpleated and hooded at the tip, that's a thing called Galanthus elwesii. And that's a very nice, very big snowdrop that often flowers very early. If it's got big leaves that are pleated longwise and sort of rolled over at the edges, that's the second commonest of the big ones. And that's called Galanthus plicatus. Now, both of those have very similar color and rather similar big flowers, but each of them, Elwesii and Plicatus, can have one green dot on the petal or two or sometimes even none. So there's lots of variation within Elwesii and Plicatus. The commonest green one you'll find out there is a thing called Waranoii, which has very, it's very easy to spot because it's got such light apple green leaves. No other snowdrops really are anywhere near as green as Waranoii is. And it's got a rather pale V-shaped mark on it. The real rarity, if you're lucky, you'll find Galanthus icarii, which is green, not blue-green, and it's broad-leaved, but the mark on the petal is a very dark pair of cycling shorts. And finally, what's your favourite snowdrop? Oh, my favourite snowdrop I think has to be just Elwesii because it's so big and it's so early and so obviously different from Nivalis. So I think that's my favorite. The, the particular one I like is a variety called Monostictus, which just has a single green mark at the bottom, whereas the original species Elwesii has an entirely green set of, of inner petals. That was Professor Mick Crawley on snowdrops, and there's a link to his snowdrop key on the Wildflower Hour website. Just go to wildflowerhour.co.uk. Now, if snowdrops mean winter is nearly over, that's good news for orchid fanatics who have to wait just a few more months before they start seeing their favourite plants in bloom. Some orchids are easy to find and surprisingly common, but others aren't even supposed to be growing in this country, like the greater tongue orchid, Serapias lingua. There have been a few sightings of this plant in a couple of parts of Britain, but last year a huge patch of it turned up quite by surprise in Essex. Mike Waller works for the London Wildlife Trust and was one of the botanists who went along to examine it. 
So, Mike, tell us a little bit about what the tongue orchid looks like. It's got a very strange name. Yeah, so the tongue orchid, well, technically it's the greater tongue orchid. Its uh, Latin name is Serapius lingua, and that refers to the lip, and that's the bit that looks like a tongue. It's kind of like a long pink appendage which pokes out the front of the flower. Very sort of distinctive uh, and unique in orchids. And is it a native orchid in this country? So it could be a native orchid. We're not entirely sure. So just to give you a bit of background about this species, it was first recorded in 1992 in Guernsey. Uh, one popped up and then promptly disappeared. And then it wasn't until June 1998, a slightly more well-known record, when a plant popped up on a farm in uh, South Devon. That persisted there until 2003, but it's a bit of a confusing one because no one really ever saw it, not even the county recorder saw that plant, so we're never really sure whether it was there or not. I'm sure that it was, but it was never a proper verified record, so it's, it's difficult to say. And it hadn't really been seen since, until mid-June last year. I was on my lunch break, sat at work, and I popped onto Facebook to have a little look at the wildflower page the big group it's got lots of members on there and boom there's a photo of a group of about 40 tongue orchids and someone saying what's this taken in essex and i was like well that's the greater tongue orchid and so promptly we decided that we were going to try and track this thing down because obviously the person that posted the picture quickly realized this is quite a rare thing but we needed to get down and see if we could find it so we followed a few leads and uh, used our sort of expertise, if you could call it expertise. So did the person take the picture down then once they realised it was rare? Oh, they did, yeah, very quickly. Um, obviously, it garnered a lot of interest in a very short period of time. We got a lot of likes, a lot of people asking where it was. And so it was really only up for maybe half an hour before the, the poster took it down. So that, and that was the end of it. And quite a few people messaged them messaged this person and they weren't responding. It was quite a difficult one to try and work out, but we eventually eventually got there and managed to find them about nine days later. Obviously, I can't give too much site information away. It's um, a sensitive site and we don't want too many people visiting, neither do the, the local residents, so we're going to keep it quiet for now. And how many of them were growing there? So, as I say, it was a, it was a big old group. Uh, in the end, we counted 61 flowering spikes. By the time I found them, they, they'd gone over and turned brown, which made them really hard to find. An interesting thing was that none of them had ripe uh, seed pods, capsules, and that's because the pollinator of the greater tongue orchid isn't actually present in the UK, which means that they can't actually reproduce in that way, and they, they reproduce vegetatively, so they sort of divide. And this is quite a common technique, and it's been um, studied quite extensively in the Mediterranean, which is where they're originally from, or where most, sort of the centre of their distribution. And uh, you'll get one plant will appear, and then over time they divide, and you get this kind of clonal group of plants in a, one specific area. How long do you think they've been there? Well, that's a very good question. So the fact we've seen 61 means they've probably been there a few years at least but kind of hard to say, really. We tried to do some maths on it, but it's difficult to say. I mean, maybe they might reproduce, they might sort of split and reproduce more in a wet year or in a dry year, or it's really hard to say, but definitely a few years at least. And how on earth do you think they actually got to this site in the first place? If their main area of distribution is the Mediterranean, that's a hell of a long way for a seed to travel, isn't it? 
Oh, it's an incredibly long way. Well, maybe not as far as you might think. I mean, the centre of their distribution is in the Mediterranean, and you know, you go to places like Mallorca, and they're really—it's quite a common species. But it does range all the way up in just about into northern France, so it's only one sort of jump over the Channel. There's another very similar species, a small-flowered tongue orchid, and that appeared in quite a wild location in the late 90s, and it flowered through until the mid-2000s, I think, in uh, Cornwall. And again, that was one that was never really questioned. It, it looked like it was a natural occurrence. It's found in northern France, so these seeds can go a long way. With this one, it's maybe a little bit more difficult. I mean, it wasn't near a path. It was completely hidden away in quite low scrub, so it seems like an odd place for someone to plant them. So it's, it appears as though it's got there in a natural way, i.e. the seed has blown over from somewhere and landed there and spread. But the question is, where does the seed come from? So you can buy this species quite easily on the open market. So it's, there's potential that on someone's patio not too far away that someone's growing these tongue orchids and the, the seed's blown over. But again, that seems unlikely because the pollinator's not around, so they must have been hand-pollinating them. So maybe they have. It's quite possible that seed could have blown over from northern France. It's a long way, but it has happened before. And I know that there will be some people listening to this podcast who have heard you say it's a very sensitive site, we're not going to give away details of it, but they still really want to see a tongue orchid. What can they do with their frustrated need to see this plant? (laughs) Well, if you really want to see the tongue orchid at its best, I would recommend going to probably southern Italy or Mallorca or even parts of France where you can see them like en masse to be honest like huge swarms of them carpets of them in open bits of woodland and even like sort of quite scrappy bits of open grassland they're, they're very common but for now I think it'd be best to stay away from the UK sites at least until they've got a bit more of a toehold. And are you planning to do any work on this site to help it spread or are you just going to monitor it? Well I think we're just going to monitor it and see how they do as i say it's a sensitive site the the future of the site is potentially in danger i can't say much more than that so we'd probably just have to see what happens and hopefully once the the future of the site is perhaps more secure then we could think about doing some more active conservation but whatever the conditions are there now it's clearly good for them and however it's managed at the moment is also clearly good for it so best to just leave it now and and sort of see what happens. And so Mike, do you spend your whole life looking at orchids that turn up on Facebook? What do you do during the day? Uh, Well, no, I'm actually, I'm a conservation ecologist for London Wildlife Trust, which basically kind of means being an orchid wildlife expert, but most of the time I don't know the answer. But so I I do a lot of active conservation stuff, uh, contract surveys, that sort of stuff, and also do some outreach and educational stuff. And actually we've we're launching a new late series uh, here at London Wildlife Trust. There'll be uh, a few more coming up. Have a look on London Wildlife Trust website and we've got a few more coming up. That was Mike Waller on The Greater Tongue Orchid. And if you enjoy orchids, which I know so many of you do, we are running weekly profiles of the native orchids of the British Isles on our Instagram, Twitter and Facebook feeds. Just have a look every Friday to learn more about these wonderfully strange plants. And finally, a number of you have been taking part in the junior section of Wildflower Hour herbology hunt. Every month we publish a spotter sheet of five wildflowers for children to find and we're really looking forward to seeing who the first children to complete the February spotter sheet are. 
We'd love to hear from any child or teenager who is into botany. Just get in touch with us on social media if you want to send us a clip of you or your child talking about wildflower hunting. One young girl who really loves wildflowers is Rebecca, who is just six years old but is already a butterfly farmer and keen wildlife expert. She shared some of her wisdom about the wildflowers that are important for butterflies with Wildflower Half Hour listeners. Hi everyone, Rebecca here. Wildflowers are very important for butterflies through all stages of their lives. Butterflies lay eggs on them. They are food for caterpillars and they nectar sauce for butterflies. Some great food plants for caterpillars are nettles. They attract the common red admirable, small tortoiseshell and peacock butterfly. Birds to trefoil attracts wood white, common blue, silver studded blue to name a few. Horseshoe rat attracts the dinky skipper, Adonis blue and other blues. Violets attract fritillaries, a few great flowers that butterflies nectar from are Godlia butterfly bush. The flowers are either pink, red, purple or white. It blooms from July and can grow. Four metres tall, Babina is purple in colour and it is easy to grow from a seed. I have some seeds sprouting right now. It can grow up to a metre tall, Lavender. It's purple and it smells very nice. So plant, plant these all in warm sunny spots to create your own butterfly garden. That's it for now. Bye. That was Becca, aged six, on wildflowers and butterflies. And that's all for this episode. I'll be back in a fortnight's time with the next Wildflower Half Hour. And please do join in with Wildflower Hour every Sunday between 8 and 9pm. Thanks for listening.